Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for joining us. It is Saturday, October 27th. I'm Danny Clayton. Good morning, Mark Oswald. What will we talk about today? <laughs> and Derek Felsky. He came in with no bandages. So that was quite a week. Let's talk about that. It was a quite a week. Uh, the S&P, the selling squall continued. The S&P closed down about 4% for the week. The NASDAQ down 3.6, small caps 3.6. And emerging markets, for the first time in ages, outperformed by declining <laughs> only 2.5%. Well, I think it's really important for our listeners this morning to, to get through the who, what, when, where, and why of of this correction. And I think, importantly, Derek, is to look back at what happened with the S&P 500 so far year-to-date going into October. And it was a pretty healthy return for the S&P 500 in the broad markets during the first three quarters, and specifically that third quarter. No, it was. It was it was the best third quarter I think we've had in five years or so. And right now we're having the worst October since 2008, which, of course, reminds folks of the scars from the financial crisis and the like. Uh, the other thing I'd point out, too, is on Friday, the S&P actually briefly touched into what they call correction territory, a decline of 10% or more uh, from a recent high. And that number was at 2637. It was interesting. It was almost like a magnet. And the market did bounce off that pretty, pretty strongly. In fact, we got to almost unchanged on the day and then just sold off into the weekend. So you mentioned correction. I think it's important, again, to define terms. So when we talk about a correction, we're not talking about a bear market, and we're certainly not talking about a recession. Those are three completely different things. A correction is natural, and that's kind of why I'm trying to draw the backdrop of the return of the S&P 500, specifically in the third quarter. This correction, for a lot of purposes, was natural. Well, it was, and, and the thing I think the thing that surprised the most people is the S&P had held up very well while other markets were in the process of correcting. Right. For example, China's in a bear market. Emerging markets are in a bear market. Uh, small caps have been much weaker than large caps this year. You know, we did a little bit of analysis on the average correction that doesn't lead to bear market, and that could be down about 14%. So, you know, somewhere between where we closed on Friday and another 3 4%, uh, I've, I have no doubt there will be buyers. There will be efforts to buy the dip, despite the fact that the recent price action has been negative. And, you know, we'll see where fundamentals lead us. Well, you know, I think you could point to a lot of different things that caused this correction, just beside it being a natural part of the way that markets operate. But I think the two things that we hear a lot of people talking about are the Fed and China and tariffs. I mean, if you put China and tariffs in one basket and the Fed in another. So I think that in our house, at least, our investment committee has pretty much baked in the the possibility of a rate hike in December. But I think what people are starting to look at is the dot plot for the Fed for 2019 and 2020. And you mentioned something to me this week that I thought was really important, taking us back to that idea of data dependent. 
it's not baked in the cake that the dot plots reflect what the Fed's actually going to do. They're going to they're going to look at GDP, for example. They're going to look at inflation. They're going to look at what's going on overseas. They're going to look at the dollar. I mean, I could make the argument right now with the dollar being so strong over the last year and a half that the dollar is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for the Fed by curbing inflation. You bet. And, and the other thing that we then look at is tariffs and a lot of tariff talk that's been going on, a lot of bravado from the White House and then coming out of Beijing as well. So, I mean, there are certainly elements of that. You look at here in the state of Wisconsin, even some manufacturers that are being really impacted by the cost of steel, the cost of aluminum, and the cost of tariffs to export their materials, Harley-Davidson being one of them, certainly. Is that an impact on the stock market as well? Are we starting to see companies earn less, and that's affecting their stock prices? Well, there, you certainly heard that from companies like PPG and 3M, you know, sure. global companies, global multinationals. They discussed that in great detail. I guess I look at it as the tax cuts gave the Fed the opportunity to normalize rates without impacting the economy in too negative of a way, which I think is important because we do want the Fed to have bullets in the event there is some sort of geopolitical crisis or or some sort of uh, event overseas or emerging markets or whatever. But the thing about the tariffs is it is inflationary. So on the one hand, the Fed is acting against the fiscal stimulus, but then it's aggravated by the tariff talk. You know, and our belief all along had been that the U.S. is really just trying to negotiate now with China. They've pivoted away from Europe. They've pivoted away from our NAFTA partners, whatever they want to call the new treaty. And they're really addressing the situation in China. And I believe everyone recognized that tariffs are to no one's advantage. And we thought in Annex for a long time that at the end of the day, tariffs are going to be lower as a result of all this than they were before this, all this furor began. Worldwide. I mean, when you look at the way that trading partners, whether they're in Europe or in Asia or in the United States here or in North America, trading partner tariffs could be less when this is all done. And you can make the argument that the U.S. has subsidized global growth for years by having higher corporate tax rates than other countries and lower tariffs than other countries. So there's a lot of other things going on, guys, and we certainly want to get to that in the next segment because this was a big week in the pantheon of things when you look back at this years from now. We will forget this week ever happened. But we'll talk about valuations of the market. We'll talk about earnings. We'll talk about a big GDP number that came out on Friday. More of that when we get back. Companies are their revenue and their earnings. And then the question becomes, what do you do with those earnings? So we look at earnings as a means of looking at the valuation not only of a company, but the valuation of a index itself. So when we look at the S&P 500, we're looking at that and saying, is that index valued properly? Is it undervalued? Is it overvalued? The way I look at it right now, Mark, is that the challenge that investors face is that earnings on a year-over-year basis have been growing at a very fast rate, 25% in the first and second quarters, probably about 22-23% this quarter, likely 20% next quarter. But then earnings growth will slow dramatically next year as we anniversary the positive impact of the tax right. cut. And I think that's what folks are focusing on. So, for example, when Amazon reported a quarter, they beat the estimates, they clobbered the estimates, but their revenue was a little light. Same thing with Alphabet, formerly known as Google. So when you get highly valued companies that have had long runs and great performance and have really carried the big averages to, to new highs, it's very tempting for folks to sell and just assume that things can't get any better than this. Those were the two big ones that I remember from this week were Amazon and Google and probably impacted the markets the most on Friday. 
when you look at Amazon, I mean, big numbers. I mean, you know, tens of billions of dollars in revenue, and they're projecting a fourth quarter revenue in the holiday season of around $70 billion, and yet that stock gets beat up. Is that fair to that company? Is that company overvalued? It is. I mean, you know, in our quantitative work, Amazon has never scored particularly well, but part of the reason is the reason Amazon hasn't made money is they've been investing so heavily right. in infrastructure. Anybody who drives up from Chicago and looks to the right sees that massive warehouse that was built several years ago. That's one thing. The other thing is there were other companies that did report great numbers, like Microsoft reported a good quarter. Sure. Uh, Intel reported a good quarter despite fears in the semiconductor space that double ordering has occurred and the like. So the fundamental backdrop is still pretty positive. You know, it's just a case in my mind of a long overdue correction, some complacency on the part of investors, and the realization that stocks just don't go up every day. Did the GDP number that arrived yesterday before all the excitement on the street, how do you decode that, Mark? Well, I look at that, you know, you look at companies and their fundamentals and the valuation, but then the other part of it is how is the economy doing? And GDP is a measurement of growth of the overall economy. In that is business spending, consumer spending, inventories, all of those are subsets of GDP. So when that number came out on Friday, I thought it was a healthy number for a lot of different reasons, not just because it was 3.5%. It was a healthy number, but again, this is what investors are dealing with. When the GDP is growing at an above, a well above average rate, stocks don't tend to do that well. Stocks do best when GDP is improving either from a negative or from a shallow positive. And the thing about this recovery is it's almost the longest economic recovery we've ever had, but we don't see the excesses. We don't have the inflation, the IPO boom, and all this other stuff you normally see at a market. Well, and I think you're right, because that's what I mean by a healthy number at 3.5%, and the expectation was 3.4. It was neither a blowout number nor a disappointment. And I think if you'd have seen a blowout number, then the idea that the Fed is going to step in more quickly to raise rates would be a damper against stock prices. On the other hand, had we missed that number, you'd start to think that the, the economy is slowing faster than people had realized, that the perception that the economy is slowing maybe is more true than we might believe. So I thought the number was healthy for a lot of reasons. No, well, it, was a, it was a good number. There's no denying that. But it didn't affect the market at all. It, it didn't. Because the, Dow, it, the Dow was down 300 before the number. It was down 500 after the number. <laughs> then it was unchanged after the number. And then it finished down 300 at the end of the day. Oh, I guess you were watching, huh? I was watching. <laughs> and well, I, you know, actually, to, to be totally candid, um, we actually put a great deal of money to work on Friday, reduced some of our fixed income exposure and added some actively managed mutual funds in our qualified accounts because one of the things investors need to recognize is there are a lot of baked-in gains in some of these mutual funds. And if you buy in front of the distribution, you'll be paying taxes for someone else's efforts and, and someone else's gains. Yeah, I really want to get into that towards the end of the end of the show because there's a cautionary tale there as we move into the end of the year about buying dividends and what people have to look out for. Do hang in there for that part of the conversation, but just back one more time, Derek, to the markets, the fear and greed index and the VIX. Let's talk about those two things because it's a measure of volatility. It's a measure of perhaps opportunity. Yeah, the fear and greed index was back below 10. Uh, it had bounced somewhat a couple of weeks ago. And historically, when the fear and greed is below 10, you try to look for opportunities, pockets of strength, perhaps a washout in things like emerging markets, energy stocks and the like. And, and, and really just 
have an even-handed approach. The one thing about the fear and greed index that I particularly like is it's not just about stocks. It looks at credit spreads, volatility, the VIX, as you mentioned. And the one area within the fear and greed index that's held up the best is spreads. So the, the fixed income guys, who I think do a much better job assessing the economy than stock market prognosticators, they don't see a recession. If they did, we'd be seeing spreads widening out. And that's the one thing we need to avoid. In order to remain bullish, we have to believe there's not a recession that's imminent. 1023 WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, the website, AnnexWealth.com. Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Our guest is Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks for having me. 401ks, that's what we're going to talk about. 401k companies make money via fees. That's how they do their thing. That is correct. Interesting, though, since 2016, 128 cases have been filed related to fund selection and oversight of 401k plans. And the headline that both you and I saw in Barron's, which is a bona fide publication, fund companies got sued by their own employees over pricey 401k plans. How do you break that down. And there were some big names in there. Yeah, yeah. All of these would be recognizable names. The good thing about the headline of this is that it says that they got sued over pricey 401k plans. Once you drill into the article, it talks about how they're self-dealing. You know, a mutual fund company provides its own 401k plan and there are their own funds within that plan. That isn't the biggest concern. It's the what were they charging their own employees for those products. A lot of people criticize saying, oh, hey, you loaded your 401k plan up with your own funds. Well, if you believe in your own product and you're selling it to other people, you should be willing to, to use it yourself as an employee of the firm. So I don't see that as the big issue. The question is, how much were they charging for it? I've, I'm in the, the Annex 401k, and I looked at it. I've got 14 funds. Not one is a Voya. And Voya does manufacture mutual fund investments. So that's part of what we do is we go through and look at, as a team, which investments are we going to offer. We love Voya as a chassis, but when we looked at the lineup and the available options, we just made the determination that we could find some other ones to fill those slots. People see this article in Barron's. Is there teeth to an article like this? A lot of these lawsuits don't have a ton of merit. When you look at these, these are about lawsuits that have been filed. There have been no judgments issued in the case of the ones that we're talking about here. When I look at these, the reason I wanted to talk to you about this is there are a lot of good people in this industry. Is this industry perfect? No, none of them are. But there's nothing wrong with a company offering its own products to its own employees. You just want to make sure that it's being offered at a reasonable price. And none of that determination has been made here. So for me, this is more of an issue of lots of articles always going after the financial services industry. Obviously, I've worked in the financial services industry my whole career. I think there are a lot of really good people in this industry. Do people need to be careful? Yeah, they got to look out there. But this blanket approach to making the financial services industry always look like it's after people is something that I just take personally. I don't like it. Got it. Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. So what do employees ask for their 401k plans? The easy way to think of it is if you're participating in a 401k plan, you'll know that it's a good plan if you understand how it works. You have a sense of someone's there to advocate for you to go about this investment selection process. So you're going to have lots of different investments to choose from in your plan. Is there someone there to help you figure that out? What's the right mix and blend for you? Those, I think, are the most important things. There are lots of different providers out there, lots of really cool tools online. But in the end, you can have the best investments in the world. You can have the greatest platform. If you don't understand it or know how to use it, it's not really going to do you that much good. So maybe I'm kind of a dope, but I figured that once the 401k plan was presented to me, my employer had acted in my best interest. Their Absolutely. Employees, and that right? is their requirement by right. law. Right. I figured the funds were right and I was going to work through that system. I guess I've never second guessed a 401k 
100 plan. There's a broad array of investments available to all the employees. And when we construct plan lineups, we do so with the, the entire employee population in mind. That does not mean, however, that you should be using all of the funds in the lineup. Quite the contrary. What you need to do is figure out from among those investments that have been made available to me, what's the right mix and blend for me? And that's the hardest part for most people. That's what we do is we jump in and say, okay, here's what you've got. Let's have a conversation. What's going to be the right mix and blend for you? And like you and I, I'm sure, don't have the same allocation. We're a different age. We have you know different stages in life. That doesn't mean that either one of us is doing anything wrong. It's just that we're doing something different. Well, this is what you do for Annex Wealth Management. If somebody needs the help, how do they do it? This is what we do all day long. So you give us a call. We do just as we do for individuals, a free portfolio analysis. We do the same thing for 401k plans. It's just a little bit more complicated because they're more moving parts. At a minimum, help you understand if you are a fiduciary and a plan, at least help you understand what do you have? How much are you paying? Who's getting paid what? That in and of itself is a useful exercise to go through. If by going through that process, you determine that maybe you don't have the thing you should have or something should change, we can obviously provide you with some recommendations on that. Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. Hurry back, okay? Thanks for having me. 48 degrees. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Ian Phillips is here, Director of Client Learning and Development, Annex Wealth Management, also a CFP and a CDFA. Did you add anything else in? No, no. No, okay. We're going to talk about the sandwich generation. Boy, I'm in it. You're in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, 40, maybe 50-year-olds, and we're caught in a sandwich between kids that we might be helping and parents that need help. Right. So we really are literally stuck between, uh, they could be minor children still at home because people are having kids later in life, and then, of course, there's the aging population. This is not new. We've We've always had parents and we've always had kids, but it seems that either the millennials are moving back home or our parents are running into ailments. We're hit on both fronts. So remember back in the 70s, rocking chair retirement, people would retire at 65, actuarially live another five to seven years. And that's oh, it. Yep. Now it's 20 to 30. So we're seeing people who are trying to age in place in their home. Sometimes that doesn't work. It seems like several generations ago, you might have had a stay-at-home parent, right? And so then Taking care of the kids, whether they're in the nest or reflown back in, and the parents might not be as difficult. Flash forward to this generation of 40 to 60-year-olds, however, and you've got a generation of people where usually both adults in the household work. So then how do you balance the work life when all of a sudden you have an aging parent who needs your attention? Well, you and I have both been there this year, right? and it's tough. I think it's tougher with uh, dealing with your parents than it is with your kids. It is a little easier, so let's start there. First off, people are having children a little later in life, so what we're seeing as financial planners is people might walk into the door and say, hey, I've got this nest egg built up for my retirement, and guess what? I'm retiring right on the cusp of my kid going to college. Now what do I do? And a lot of people will come in with the feeling that, gee, I I feel I'd like to take care of my kids' college. That is very honorable. It's very wonderful, but it requires planning. And you definitely want to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Danny, I've had to have the uncomfortable conversation saying, well, you can pay for your grad school for your children all the way up through their Ph.D., but is their house going to be big enough that you can live there, too? Mm. Speaking of them living there, now (laughs) they get out and they move back in. That's another issue. The kids who've flown the coop, flown the nest and then come back in – 
there tends to be this parental feel of still, we want to help them, right? So, so when a kid comes back in, I've heard and seen the tendency to say, well, I don't want to charge them for rent because they're helping out around the house. I say, eh, thanks for playing at that one. I am totally with you. In fact, we had one of our sons that moved back in. We charged him rent. We didn't charge him full, full, full rent, like, you know, six, seven, eight hundred dollars. But we charged him some because he needed to have some skin in the game. He did. And so as a financial planner, I can tell you in any agreement and this really when you are charging somebody especially when there is no arm's length which means you know they're your family right there's sentiment there's emotion involved in that you're always best coming in with an agreement and we advocate a written agreement sit down and write out expectations on both sides because I'm sure as you found out those grown boys can eat a lot too so the food factor that in of itself your cost can go up nothing like when they were in high school all right let's talk about caring for aging parents okay so the aging parent also brings up the emotion you know we feel gee our parents took care of us it's our job to take care of them which is very true statistically however according to the alzheimer's association there are actually danny more than 16 million americans that are providing unpaid care for family members two-thirds of those are women. We've already discussed women are pretty fully in the job place. What do you do when all of a sudden you need to take off for mom's medical appointments or the emergency phone calls that you get? You know, the mom fell and now you're looking at a hospitalization and a rehab. Sometimes people see dollar signs, but in cases like this, we tend to see time off as the big flashing red number. And that takes negotiation with maybe your HR department. You know, before you just say, I got to quit my job, have a conversation. Maybe you can take a medical leave of absence. I would encourage you to re-engage your siblings out there and your adult children. I've had people come to us and say, my siblings live out of state. They can't help. Yeah, they can. They can get on the internet. They can do research for you. They can make the phone calls. In fact, some of the phone calls that I've seen and found helpful, Danny, is just asking my sister, I need you to be the person to call mom every day. That's your contribution. So you've got a Women, Wealth, and Wisdom seminar coming up. It's a workshop, and this is really targeted for those two-thirds caregivers that are women. We're going to be able to take a look at ways to take some of the burden off of ourselves. We'll be able to share some stories, what has worked, and quite frankly, what hasn't worked for all of us as caregivers on both ends, with the kids and with the parents, and also also, I want to throw in here, sometimes it's with a spouse. I've seen more and more of that, too. A disabled spouse, an aging spouse, a spouse with dementia. I don't want to discount this because you are also obviously in that dual caretaker role. So all of these women are invited to join us, bring a friend at the Rumpus Room on November the 8th. You can go to our website, AnnexWealth.com slash events slash sandwich, because you're the one sandwiched in there, and you can get more details on the event. So there's a double slash in there. So AnnexWealth.com slash events slash sandwich there you go Deanne phillips director of client learning and development thank you for joining us thanks for having me know the difference it is team tech trust that's the first thing you're going to see when you hit to annexwealth.com and then that big green button says get started that is where you begin the process for the free portfolio analysis kick the tires see what we've got uh you've certainly heard this show for a long long time and you've heard the depth of the team and that's where the team part of team tech and trust comes in again it is annexwealth.com Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. 
Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, October 27th. I'm Danny Clayton. It's time for Ask Annex, and we would love for you to submit your questions at AnnexWealth.com slash ask, and that's where this one comes from. Jill Martin, estate planning attorney from Annex Wealth Management. You've had three of these this week. I have. All right, let's get to it. What are the tax consequences of giving your house to your children to avoid having it, quote, taken away? And then what happens if it needs to be sold while you're still alive? So kind of give us some context there. Sure. So multiple components of that. Taken away is where we're trying to plan to make sure that the value of that house doesn't have to be spent down before someone qualifies for Medicaid. You have to have certain asset qualifications and income limitations before you qualify for Medicaid, which is the government program for long-term care. So what people do is is they plan to try and make sure they're saving assets or ensuring that they're going to go to the next generation so they don't have to be spent down prior to that. So let me put that in context. So my mother today is 80, coming up on 81 next month. Happy birthday in advance. And, you know, she owns two homes and one here in Wisconsin and one in Florida that she bought along with my dad when my dad was still alive. So the question would be, in the event that she gets sick, Jill, in the event that she needs to go into a long-term care facility, or even if she needs care at home, she wouldn't be eligible to do that until she would spend down a certain amount of assets. And I think people perceive that as having had one of the houses or both of the houses taken away from them. What's really happening is they're trying to get to that asset and income threshold so that they're eligible for benefits. Correct. And so what happens is is it's not the government taking it away per se, but what it is is you have to spend down the value of that on your care first and foremost before that governmental benefit kicks in. So one of the things we're exploring right now is putting the houses into an irrevocable trust. Essentially, she gives those houses away forever. Is that one of the strategies that you could employ? It is. The thing you have to be careful with, and even if it's in a trust or it's outright to your children, is is Medicaid has this five-year look back. So they're going to look at whatever you did during the five years prior to when you're trying to qualify for those benefits. So being proactive about this is a really key component. So if she did it today, for instance, in 2018, and she needed care a year from now, they'd look back and say, well, you could have used that house even though you gave it away. It's still included in her bucket for the calculation of benefits. Absolutely. So that, that becomes a problem. So when you, when you start to do planning with people, you're starting to look at younger and younger people that are looking at this as a strategy because of that gift and contemplation rule. Absolutely. So when is the time to do this? Well, it, it, you, you look at things and say, well, what, what's my health, right? For my family, at least, the question was, it's going to go to the kids anyways. Why don't we at some point in time look at retitling these houses or putting them into trust for benefit of the children? Because when something ultimately does happen to both of my parents, we were going to get those houses anyways. The benefit of doing it this way, Jill, would be to avoid the possibility of a rushed sale, one of the houses having to be sold to create income to pay for the nursing home. Absolutely. And the thing that we talk to clients a lot about is, is what they're doing, though, is, is they're giving that away. Whether it's a house or it's a brokerage account or something that they're trying to give away, the question is, is are they comfortable parting with that asset and that value? Because that may have an impact on their financial plan in another way that's detrimental. Is that the holdback for some people? I mean, you look at some families that have maybe a second marriage or, or a, maybe a marriage within the children that's maybe not as solid as some other marriages, and you, there's a fear that giving it away forever might mean giving it away forever? Absolutely. You know, people work hard for their wealth that they've developed and all of a sudden to just give it away 
and not have any strings where they could pull it back is a very hard decision because for some of us, it might be that $5,000 is a lot to give away, but for others, it might be 500000 Everybody's financial plan is in such a different place. That dollar amount is different for everyone. One of the questions I always get from people is, what is that threshold? Where, what's that dollar amount? How much can I have? Can I keep my primary home? Is it $50,000 or is it $20,000? Or how much income can I have before I'm no longer eligible for benefits? So Medicaid, it's, it's, there are a lot of specific rules about it, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that. <laughs> so you know, it's one of those things where we have a group of elder law attorneys that we work with that are really, really skilled in knowing all of the rules and the ins and outs of what those eligibility requirements are. It's like most things, of course, you know, it it goes into a planning concept. It's something we do with our contacts in the community, elder law people, certainly Jill, you're involved in that stuff on day-by-day basis with our clients when they come in for review meetings. Part of the planning process, if you haven't done it, it's certainly a conversation to be had. Certainly when you get to a certain point in life and you have assets and you want to make sure that you're protecting those assets, this is a strategy worth looking at. Thank you, Mark Oswald. Jill Martin, estate planning attorney at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, it is a 1052 WTMJ. Know the difference, Annex Wealth Management, AnnexWealth.com. Sign up for Axiom, which is our free weekly newsletter. Again, that's AnnexWealth.com. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, October 27th. I'm Danny Clayton, Derek Felsky, hanging out. So is Mark Oswald. And I want to thank Jill Martin for Ask Annex. And here's kind of a leftover topic. And we didn't get to this one because we went a little bit long with Jill, but I think it's a good one. Well, it is because we brought it up earlier in the show, too. And, and I know what the question was, but it was just coincidental that we were talking about mutual fund purchases towards the end of the year, Derek. And I've heard it all my life as an investor and as somebody who runs a compliance department, this idea of buying a mutual fund close to the date where it starts to declare either dividends or capital gains, capital gains, long-term, short-term capital gains. And there's a danger in doing that. And I think it's worth talking about as we move into November, some of the funds that we own have already talked about making distribution. In preparing for the position change we made on Friday, I called many of the vendors that we work with, you know, for example, one fund, 10% distribution, another 20. And we have a decline like this. So, for example, let's say one of the funds that we own has held Amazon, and they decided, based on the quarter that was reported uh, yesterday, they want to reduce that position. Well, they're going to take massive gains. But if you then come in and buy that fund before the distribution date, you're going to get the gains, even though you own, you didn't own the fund when it owned Amazon. Well, so take an example, for instance. So let's say that you, let's talk about the net asset value. So that's what a mutual fund sells for, the net asset value. That's the value of a share of a mutual fund at the end of the day when they do all their accounting and close up the books for the day. The net asset value is the value of one share of a mutual fund. So let's say the net asset value is made up of the price of the stocks in the mutual fund plus some cash, dividends that it's picked up along the way, capital gains that it's picked up along the way. Every mutual fund is required by rule to distribute that money at the end of the year to whoever owns those shares proportionately at the end of the year. So even though you didn't get that gain, you didn't you didn't get the ride up with Amazon in your example, you're getting the distribution. Right. During this period of market weakness, I'm sure lots of folks are looking at these oversold oscillators and looking at the fear and greed index, looking at the VIX and saying, boy, you know, the VIX at 20, 25, that's a pretty high number. The market ought to bottom soon. If you're going to go out and do that, you really want to be very circumspect about how you do it. ETFs are very good for this, obviously, because typically ETFs do not pay distributions. And mutual funds can be, but you just have to time it so that you're not 
subjecting yourself to unnecessary costs. So let's go back to this because for a lot of people, they're listening to this and saying, so what? So I get a check. So I get a distribution. Isn't that a good thing? And the answer to that is no. Not unless you like to pay taxes. That's the other shoe, right? I mean, it, it, now you got this check for a ride you didn't get to take, and you get to pay the taxes, plus the net asset value goes down proportionately dollar for dollar for the amount that was distributed. Wait a minute. <laughs> exactly. So now I got this check, basically this tax bill, and my net asset value is decreased by the amount of the check that I got. Is this a total rookie mistake then? Yes, it is, and it, and it varies. So, for example, one of the firms that we do a lot of business with does their distributions before Thanksgiving. Many others do it middle of December. So you really have to pay attention to this. It's all The information is available typically on their websites. You can look at past years to have a sense of when they're going to do it, but you can find out about all of this stuff ahead of time. It's just one of the due diligence processes we have to go through. Is it buried? Do you have to look deep? No, it's, I mean, what, what do they call it? Distribution or news, you know, recent news. And, and that's basically how I found, like, for example, what Double Line's doing. I mean, I needed to know that because there was a fund they had that I kind of wanted to add to. But when I saw that the distribution in mid-December is going to be 12%, I figured, well, let's wait. Understanding this is not about mutual funds that you already own. This is about buying mutual funds at this point in time. If you owned the mutual fund all year, you've had the write-up, and you're going to get the short-term, long-term capital gains and any other distributions, and that's okay. So mutual fund investing is a sound way of doing it because you have active management in those funds. You pay for that management, and, of course, there are tax ramifications to that growth. Now, of course, that doesn't happen in IRAs, Roth IRAs, and other accounts like that. So these are only non-qualified accounts that you have to worry about. What do you think the percentage of people that know that this happens is? I think it's pretty small. You know, and, Derek, when we start thinking about all of these tricks of the trade, as you will, you know, I start thinking about do-it-yourselfers. I think about people out there who are trying to, you know, make their way, and God love them. I think there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers who do extremely well. Those people have the time and the talent to do it, but there are certainly tax ramifications to a lot of things that happen in a portfolio. And for people who are out there right with the market doing what the market has done this past week and tax time coming and some of these considerations that you have to put into your own portfolio if you're a do-it-yourselfer, now would be a good time for a portfolio review. Oh, I agree. In fact, you know, I was looking at the home-building stocks. They are down a ton, and there's this expectation somehow that they're going to—they're trading at t- less than ten times earnings, many of them. So if you believe rates are going to stabilize and not go significantly higher, there are just all sorts of opportunities in both extremes. You know, st- stocks that are too strong and too expensive, and others that are cheap and, and are giving a much better entry point than we've had since really since the president was elected. More volatility next week, I suspect, and and certainly as we get into the midterm elections. So look at volatility as an opportunity to rebalance your portfolio, to reexamine your risk, and maybe look at some opportunities that might be in front of you. It is 11 o'clock. Thank you, Mark Oswald. Thank you, Derek Felsky. Thanks, everybody. That is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, the website, AnnexWealth.com. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Scripps Media Incorporated.